Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, October 10th, 2017, is a distinguished Lehrman Fellow at NYHS Lecture. Historian Andrew Roberts defines the characteristics of great military leaders from Napoleon Bonaparte to Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor to be invited to address you this evening, and uh, I'd like to preface my remarks by thanking Lou and Louise um, Lerman for their tremendous generosity in funding this lecture series over the past three years, uh, as well as for their personal friendship. Um, I put the money to very good use, uh, by the way. Uh, I, we're helping to pay my daughter Cassia's high school fees, and I'm very proud to say that uh, yesterday she matriculated at Cambridge University. Um, thank you. Um, apparently it's traditional to stay up till 4.30 in the morning uh, after the matriculation feast uh, at her college, which was also my college, and I can't remember that tradition at all, but uh, there we are. Um, thank you, everybody, also at the New York Historical Society, Pam Schaffler, Helen Miller, uh, Dale Gregory, and uh, Alex Castle for being so efficient at this, uh, at this truly wonderful institution. The story of the human race is war. Winston Churchill's doleful conclusion has not been disproven since he made it in 1929. Indeed, there's only been one year in the 72 since the end of the Second World War when a British serviceman has not been killed on active duty somewhere in the world. And roughly the same must be true of Americans too. That year was 1966, by the way, over half a century ago now. At a time when the clearly deranged 33-year-old dictator of North Korea is on the verge of developing a delivery system for a nuclear bomb that could incinerate an American metropolis such as this in a matter of moments, the truth of Churchill's remarks still very much with us. The answer to this omnipresent blight on the human condition is a counterintuitive one. It's not to embrace pacifism and isolate oneself from the world and its troubles. The reach of the rocket and the plane has become too great and the planet has become too interconnected for that to work anymore. But rather we must do the precise opposite. The answer instead is to engage further and more actively in trying to understand the phenomenon of war. For as Churchill wrote to a Mr. J. H. Anderson in December 1906, thanking him for sending an account of Sir John Moore's campaign in the Iberian Peninsula, um, it is all one story in spite of every change in weapons, from the sheep under whose bellies Ulysses escaped from the cave of the Cyclops to the oxen with which De Wet broke the blockhouse line in the Orange Free State. By my desk in my study at home is a letter from Aldous Huxley, written from Deronda Drive in Los Angeles in November 1959, which states, quote, that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of the lessons that history has to teach us. <laughs> Yet those few lessons we do learn must be the right ones. Um, 
One of the nine war leaders I've concentrated upon in this lecture series remembered his school history teacher as, quote, a grey-haired man whose fiery description made us forget the present and who invoked plain historical facts out of the fog of the centuries and turned them into living reality. He not only knew how to throw light on the past by utilising the present, but also how to draw conclusions from the past and apply them to the present. More than anything else, he showed understanding for all the daily problems which held us breathless at the time. He was the teacher who made history my favourite subject. That was, of course, written by Adolf Hitler uh, in Mein Kampf. And uh, it illustrates, I think, how easy it has been for many people to learn the wrong lessons from history. In these lectures, which I'm delighted, uh, by the way, to be able to tell you are going to be published as a book uh, by Penguin, both in Britain uh, and here in the United States, um, I've concentrated on the war leadership of nine very different individuals. Yet despite this breadth of geographical background, length and type of service, periods of history in which they lived and their very different levels of service to civilization, there are certain leadership traits that they all exhibited, and they're not necessarily the ones that you would expect. Charisma, for example, turned out in this lecture series to be a totally artificial phenomenon created by tricks and techniques, such as Hitler's never allowing himself to be photographed wearing spectacles in order to perpetuate the myth of the Aryan Superman. Reviewing Alfred Duff Cooper's biography of Field Marshal Earl Haig, uh, the British commander-in-chief during the First World War, in the Daily Mail in October 1935, Churchill wrote that, quote, no one can discern a spark of that mysterious, visionary, often sinister genius which has enabled the great captains of history to dominate the material factors, save slaughter, and confront their foes with the triumph of novel apparitions. Haig himself certainly failed in all those three. He couldn't dominate the material factors of trenches and flat ground and the machine gun. Uh, he couldn't save slaughter. And without Churchill godfathering the tank, there would have been virtually no novel apparitions on the battlefield, except for poison gas, which the Germans used first. Trenches, machine guns, railways, all had been seen in the American Civil War some half a century earlier. Yet what Churchill called that mysterious, visionary, often sinister genius of other captains of, histories, of history has been apparent throughout the ages. And with the leaps in technology that we've witnessed in our own lifetimes, novel apparitions are likely to be seen even more in the future. How can 100, how, how can 100 people be led by a single person? That was the essay question um, in my university entrance exam back in 1981, and it's long fascinated me. But ultimately, it's the art of leadership that explains how not merely 100 people, but sometimes 100,000 or a million, or in China's case, a billion men and women can ultimately be led for good or evil. When one views the long story of the ancient world up to and beyond the fall of the Roman Empire, it becomes clear that the commanders of the great Egyptian, Judean, Assyrian, Greek, Macedonian, Roman, and finally Hun empires provide not just examples of terrifying and inspiring leadership in themselves, but also the template for almost all of the great commanders who came after them. It's impossible to consider the military and political career of Napoleon Bonaparte, for example, without appreciating how he consciously saw himself as a worthy modern successor to Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. 
And he proved as much in his exile on the island of St. Helena before his death in 1821, when he wrote Caesar's biography. It's likewise astounding how often the um, battles like Cannae and Actium and leaders like Hannibal and Scipio crop up in the thought and conversation of the military leaders of the 19th and 20th centuries. Winston Churchill saw himself acting on the same historical plane as his great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, and his ultimate hero, Napoleon. His immediate templates for his leadership in 1940 were David Lloyd George and Georges Clemenceau in the Great War. In December 1897, he wrote to his mother, Nelson's life should be a lesson to the youth of England. Margaret Thatcher, likewise, drew her own inspiration from the, uh, during the Falklands War from Churchill. She was 14 years old when she and her family sat around the radio at Grantham, listening to his rousing wartime speeches. George Marshall's heroes were the giants of the American Civil War. As a young cadet at the Virginia Military Institute, he had seen Stonewall Jackson's widow attend commemoration services there. Charles de Gaulle's heroes also included Clemenceau, and ironically enough, as it turned out, Marshal Philippe Pétain. But they also went back to the great constables of France and, of course, to Joan of Arc, while he was curiously ambivalent about Napoleon, who de Gaulle thought of as a megalomaniac to which any Englishman must add, it takes one to know one. <laughs> um, Stalin revered the distinctly unmilitary Karl Marx, of course, as uh, his latest biography by Stephen Kotkin confirms far more than we even suspected. And not for nothing did Hitler, who also admired Arminius, codename his invasion of Russia after another of his heroes, Emperor Frederick I, known as Barbarossa. You can tell a great deal about leaders from their heroes and the way they drew uh, inspiration from history. Actually, of Napoleon's and Hitler's marches on Moscow, I'm reminded of the two great maxims that were laid down by Field Marshal Montgomery. The first was, never invade Russia. Uh, and the second was, never trust the Royal Air Force with your luggage. <laughs> Let's look at the combination of attributes that I attributed to Napoleon in my opening lecture back in November 90, uh, 2014. These were uh, the ability to compartmentalise, meticulous planning, appreciation of terrain, superb timing, steady nerves, appreciation of the importance of discipline and training, understanding the psychology of the ordinary soldier to create esprit de corps, the issuing of inspirational speeches and proclamations, controlling the news cycle, adapting the modern tactical ideas of others, asking pertinent questions of the right people, a deep learning and appreciation of history, a formidable memory, utter ruthlessness when necessary, the deployment of personal charisma, immense calmness under unimaginable pressure, especially in moments that look like defeat, being lucky, and an almost obsessive compulsive attention to detail, rigorous com uh, control of one's emotions, and the ability to exploit a momentary numerical advantage at the decisive point on a battlefield. Napoleon had all of these, but he still made the terrible error at Mariano Slavets on the 25th of October 1812 of choosing the wrong direction by which to get his army back to France. However generous the sprites and fairies are when they land, uh, when they gather around the great leader's uh, cradle with their gifts, there's always a malicious one present to snatch back one gift from the cornucopia. 
So let us look at some of these attributes in turn to see who else has exemplified them. Concentration, quote, concentration was one of the keys to his character, unquote, recalled James Stewart, Winston Churchill's chief whip. It was not always obvious, but he never really thought of anything else but the job in hand, unquote. Churchill melded his life entirely around his job during the Second World War, taking only two days proper holiday in the six years of conflict when he went swimming in Florida. Um, But even then, he was attended by his red ministerial boxes and he read the newspapers. Similarly, he was able to work almost throughout his two major bouts of pneumonia during the war. Unsurprisingly, many other great leaders have also been workaholics. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, Helmut von Moltke and Marshal Konyev are other examples. And only Hitler can be recognised as having been genuinely lazy and lacking in a work ethic. Not lazy enough, (laughs) Uh, one might be forgiven for thinking. Energy is an almost demonic attribute, hard to characterise, meaning much more than merely an eagerness to leap out of bed in the mornings. Churchill was one of the most energetic of all these leaders besides Napoleon, and he sometimes didn't get out of bed till lunchtime, uh, and that was just for a hot bath. Um, Yet he had been working on his papers uh, since before breakfast. A war leader's ability to plan meticulously is... Uh, important, despite the well-known truism that few plans last beyond the initial contact with the enemy. It's often forgotten that one of the most successful war plans in modern history, Hitler's blitzkrieg against the West that succeeded in knocking out France, Belgium, Luxembourg and Holland in six weeks in May and June 1940, was not the original one. Uh, When the original plans fell into Allied hands only days before the assault was due to be launched, Erich von Manstein drew up a new one with its famous sickle-cut manoeuvre, in which the concentrated armour cut the Allies off from their supply bases, the Maginot Line was skirted, the mountainous Ardennes forest, hitherto, uh, hitherto thought impassable, was used as a conduit. And the Germans broke through at Sedan in six days and reached the Channel Coast in Abbeville in only ten. That, ladies and gentlemen, was their plan B. Um, For planning and uh, for leadership in general, a good memory is useful, or failing that, an excellent filing system. I'm convinced that Winston Churchill had an almost uh, photographic memory, and not just for musical songs and Shakespeare. By the way, if anybody here is interested in supporting the forthcoming Churchill and Shakespeare exhibition at the Folger Library in Washington, D.C. next November, which I'm guest curating, uh, and for which the Churchill Archives in Cambridge will be bringing over some originals of Churchill's more Shakespearean speeches, uh, please do let me know afterwards. Churchill would spend many hours memorising his speeches and constantly practice them to make them word perfect. Some, some speeches he would work on for as much as 30 hours uh, and would constantly practice them and would um, even make up speeches he was not about to give but might be called upon to deliver sometime in the future. Um, and sometimes he actually gave uh, and practiced speeches that um, were in the past uh, hundreds of years in the past, what he would have said under certain circumstances in the uh, in the past. That's that's the sort of level to which he was uh, he was uh, sort of professionally fascinated by the concept of oratory. 
And for a superb filing system, one can hardly do better than Napoleon, who used his chief of staff, Alexandre de Berthier, to ensure that even in a carriage rattling along at full pace, they were able to place uh, geographically every unit in his army and send and receive messages as aide-de-camp rode up to the windows and away again. When I mentioned appreciation of terrain, I didn't just mean geographical and topographical. A great leader has to appreciate the political and economic terrain over which he is to campaign also. Franklin Roosevelt might have liked to have brought the United States into World War II at an earlier stage than he eventually did, but he still had to make the promise in Boston in the 1940 election that, quote, your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars, unquote, in order to retain the White House and face the storm that was to come. Uh, Such was the isolationist sentiment at the time. A leader has to be a realist, albeit one who appreciates the precise moment when it's possible to change public sentiment. And, of course, there was nothing foreign about the wars that the Japanese unleashed on Hawaii on the 7th of December 1941, or the one that Hitler declared on America four days later. FDR, in that sense, had kept his campaign promise. In this area, Abraham Lincoln was also a supreme war leader, easily the equal of anyone I'll be mentioning this evening. His almost preternatural sense of what the Union would be able to accept politically and when it would accept it, um, of what he could ask for and what he couldn't, and his willingness to ride the political storms, do the necessary deals, sack underperforming or disloyal generals, and employ oratory of the Periclean quality of the Gettysburg Address and the two inaugural speeches, makes him second to none in the American pantheon for war leadership. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world, wrote George Bernard Shaw in Man and Superman. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. A talent for well-timed unreasonableness is another attribute of the great leader. Queen Elizabeth I refused to name her successor despite continuous prompting from her Privy Council, thus protecting the country from the danger of civil war. She also refused to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh early uh, on in her reign, despite the pleadings of Lord Burley under the threat posed by the Dukes of Guise until that threat finally diminished. Apropos of nothing at all uh, beside the uh, connections with the Duke of Guise and indeed Julius Caesar, a pearl ring that uh, once belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots, was almost swallowed by Elizabeth Taylor's Pekingese dog, Ophie, um, in the Valentine suite of Caesar's Palace Hotel in Las Vegas. Um, It's a reminder of the eternal truth of Napoleon's remark made to the Marquis de Conancourt on the retreat from Moscow that from the sublime to the ridiculous, is but a single step. I haven't noticed that a sense of humour is necessary in a great leader. Um, Margaret Thatcher, much as I admired her, uh, had none whatsoever. And and it was said that the only two times in his life that Helmut von Moltke, the elder, smiled... Uh, was when he was told that the fortress of Liège was too strong to be captured and uh, when he was told that his mother-in-law had died. (laughs) Having steady nerves in a crisis cannot be underestimated, but can be learned. Basil Littlehart wrote in his 1944 book, Thoughts on War, that the two qualities of mental initiative and strong personality or determination go a long way towards the power of command in war. They are indeed the hallmark of the great captains. 
Although Stalin had something approaching a mental breakdown when he heard about Operation Barbarossa on the 22nd of June 1941, retiring to his dacha for days as the Red Army and uh, Air Force were pounded on every front, um, by mid-October, when the Germans were at the gates of Moscow, although he had his personal train made ready to take him away from the threatened capital, his nerves had steadied enough for him to stay on and stick it out. By contrast, Charles de Gaulle's behaviour on the 25th of August 1944, when he attended the service of liberation in Notre Dame while bullets were still being fired within the cathedral, shows rock-steady nerves. An appreciation of the importance of discipline and training are central to the war leadership of Generals uh, Marshall and Eisenhower, the scale of whose achievements is still awe-inspiring three quarters of a century later. To have trained an army up from virtually nothing, the 14th largest in the world, uh, smaller than Romania's, to be a, uh, in a position by the time of D-Day, only two and a half years later to take on the best of the Wehrmacht and win in open country was a truly extraordinary achievement. Discipline had to be imposed on generals as well as men. No one sacked as many generals in American history as did George Marshall. And even General Patton had to be severely disciplined by Eisenhower after the face-slapping incident. Um, and training was also a watchword of both Marshall and Eisenhower, who struck precisely the right balance between eliminating slackness and retaining initiative. In October 1944, General Patton defined leadership as a capacity for, quote, telling somebody who thinks he's beaten that he is not beaten. As wars are won by the victor of the last battle, this capacity for inspiring the losers of the penultimate battle is key. Here, the sheer doggedness of George Washington stands out as almost supreme, certainly alongside that of, of Churchill in 1940. The evacuation from Brooklyn across the East River aside, where a weird combination of low mist and adverse wind direction somehow prevented the Royal Navy from scooping up a force that was down to 9,000. Damn it. Um, Washington enjoyed few actual victories in 1775 and 1776. As Churchill said of Dunkirk, wars are not won by evacuations. But also like Dunkirk, the sheer fact of survival and escape was in itself victory for the American revolutionaries. Simply surviving the hardships of Valley Forge through that winter kept the cause alive and could not have been done without Washington's shining leadership by personal example. What little heart was to call mental initiative and strong personality or determination was personified by Washington in that freezing winter of 1776 to 77. Understanding the psychology of both the ordinary soldier and civilian is an important part of war leadership. Today, it seems to be assumed that in order to lead the people, one needs to be of them. But that's not the case. Many of those who have exuded leadership ability hail from the moneyed or upper classes of their countries. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Churchill, John F. Kennedy amongst them. Yet they seem to have a sense of what motivated soldiers and citizens from backgrounds far uh, different in the social scale than them. A capacity to empathise is far more important than class background. Napoleon, uh, sorry, uh, Churchill never took a bus in his life. Uh, neither did Napoleon, <laughs> I can't think of it. Um, but um, he could speak directly to the needs of what he called the cottage home. He always tried to ensure that uh, the men had their comforts, such as beer and a good postal service. 
Napoleon similarly learnt from Caesar the way that shame could be used to encourage men to show bravery. He admonished troops whom he considered to have fallen below expectations, as in the Italian campaign of 1796-97. to In his book, Caesar's Wars, Napoleon recounted the story of a mutiny in Rome when, when Caesar had laconically agreed to his soldiers' demands to be demobilised but then address them with inconcealed contempt to citizens rather than soldiers or comrades. As Napoleon noted, the result of this moving scene was to win the continuation of their services. In order for this to work, the leader needs to have displayed a personal courage that is admired by his or her followers. Nelson lost an eye and an arm in battle. Napoleon fought 60 battles and survived numerous assassination attempts with aplomb. Stalin showed bravery as a serial bank robber, um, and, uh, and he refused to get on that personal train that I mentioned earlier. Hitler won the Iron Cross first class and second class, although it's been discovered recently that it uh, went to all the runners in the 16th Bavarian Reserve Regiment, regardless of personal bravery. Churchill showed personal bravery on so many occasions that I hope to tell you about them uh, sometime in my forthcoming lecture series, which starts on the 16th of January. Charles de Gaulle was involved in so much close fighting in World War I that he had the extraordinary distinction of reading his own obituary not once but twice. Um, Of those who, for various reasons, did not have the opportunity to see combat, George Marshall and Dwight Eisenhower were on the staff, so no one doubts that they'd have shown courage if they'd had the opportunity. Uh, Margaret Thatcher held herself with tremendous calm, courage and dignity when the IRA attempted to assassinate her. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt showed bravery in even seeking office, let alone the presidency, after having been diagnosed with polio in 1925. Surprisingly enough, a capacity for great oratory is not absolutely indispensable for leadership. Napoleon wasn't much of a uh, public speaker, for example, but it is extraordinarily helpful if it can be acquired. Great leaders take care to um, uh, not to get the establishments and elites and staffs, allow them to get between the uh, leader and the led, and to be able to speak directly to one's uh, followers is invaluable. Every method possible has been used to close that gap, from Napoleon's orders of the day and proclamations to the Grande Armée, to Second World War generals standing up on jeeps uh, to address individual units. Although it's easy to decry um, your president's uh, use of Twitter to communicate directly with the electorate, it's something that would definitely have been used by Pericles, Charlemagne, Alfred the Great, as well as Garibaldi, uh, Douglas MacArthur, Margaret Thatcher, if they'd been able to. Napoleon's christening of one of his batteries at Toulon, Les Hommes Sans Peur, uh, showed a capacity to say what he needed to, using no more than 140 characters. Indeed, his phrase to uh, his troops before the Battle of the Pyramids, 40 centuries look down upon you, only takes up 35 characters. Acts of ruthlessness are part and parcel of war leadership. Napoleon's massacre of the Turkish artillerymen after the capture of Jaffa in 1799 is a case in point, as is Nelson's execution of Commodore Francesco Caraccioli, who was uh, hanged from the yardarm of his flagship after uh, after he had surrendered at Naples the same year. After my last lecture... Uh, in April, a descendant of the Commodore came up to tell me that uh, generations of his family, including his mother, consider Nelson to be a war criminal. The Duke of Wellington's um, scorched earth policy outside Lisbon 
committed against um, Britain's own ally, Portugal, was ruthless, as was William Tecumseh Sherman's March to the Sea. Churchill's moments of ruthlessness came when he sank the French fleet at Oran, bullied the London Poles into recognising the communist Lublin Poles, and when he agreed to, at Yalta to ship tens of thousands of Cossacks who had fought for Hitler back to the Soviet Union where they faced almost certain death. Yet even these cannot be set, aside, set beside the ruthlessness of uh, Attila or Genghis Khan or Shaka Zulu or Yamashita. Uh, Tamerlane used to build huge piles of human skulls in the cities he sacked in India, where he slaughtered every male of military age. He, spa he spared actually two types of people, chess players and historians. Uh, so he couldn't have been all bad. Although Churchill's ruthlessness in refusing to, for political reasons, to acknowledge the guilt of the Russians for the Katyn massacre of 1940 is morally reprehensible, it is, of course, not on the same plane as Stalin's responsibility for ordering the massacre itself. In the Führerbunker, Adolf Hitler ordered the execution of Eva Braun's sister's husband, Hermann Fegelein, on the 28th of April 1945, the day before Hitler's wedding to Eva, and only 24 hours before their joint suicide. No way to ingratiate yourself with the in-laws. Half the battles that we've discussed over the past four years were won before they were fought, because of the way the leaders created a reputation for invincibility. This capacity for propaganda and image creation can be seen in the careers of Tutmosis III, Alcibiades, Pompey, uh, Trajan, Genghis and Kublai Khan, Hernando Cortes, Akbar the Great, Gustavus Adolphus, Rommel, uh, Bernard Montgomery, George Patton and Moshe Dayan. They recognised that if their reputations could help conquer and thus save the lives of their men, who were they to stay modest? The, gen the number of genuinely modest or retiring Greek commanders are few, but they might include Ulysses Grant, Dwight Eisenhower and William Slim. Perhaps surprisingly, there is some overlap between successful war leadership and literary ability, quite beyond the capacity for propaganda, though this might just reflect the overlap between successful leadership and high intellect. Julius Caesar, Xenophon, Frederick the Great, Napoleon, Grant in his memoirs, David Lloyd George, all showed at least some literary talent. He never wrote memoirs for obvious reasons, but Lord Nelson, like uh, Churchill, could scarcely write a dull sentence. When he was describing a battle scene, he breathlessly brought his readers right into the action. Here he is uh, on HMS Agamemnon, describing to a comrade in arms his attack on the French in Corsica in February 1794. No sooner did we get within reach than they began, they began at us with shot and shells. I backed our main topsail that we might be as long as possible in passing and return their fire for one hour and a half when we were drawing too great a distance for our shot to do execution. The fire from the ships was well kept up, and I am sure that not ten shots were fired which did not do service. On one battery, a vast explosion of gunpowder took place, and it was some time before they could extinguish it. The enemy's fire was very badly directed. Each ship had a few shots struck her, but not a man killed or wounded. If he had somehow failed as a sailor, Nelson would have made a decent living as a Napoleonic War novelist, uh, predating C.S. Forrester, Patrick O'Brien and Bernard Cornwall. 
Considering that Nelson left school to become a midshipman just short of his 13th birthday is a tribute to the education available on late 18th century Royal Naval vessels that he was as literate as he was. The only moment when his grammar completely breaks down uh, is when he falls in the throes of furious sexual jealousy, believing the Prince of Wales to be trying to seduce Lady Hamilton in 1801. Even then, his longing for her uh, is worthy of the metaphysical poets, writing, "If Even had I millions and an empire, you should participate in it with me. As Nelson knew, the capacity to launch a surprise attack and then retain the initiative has always been important, from the career of Joshua in the 13th century BC to that of General Giap in the 1960s. Surprises have included Hannibal's taking elephants across the Alps in 2018 BC, a route Napoleon also took with his surprise attack that led to the Battle of Marengo in 1800, all the way to Gerd von Rundstedt's attack through the Ardennes that led to the Battle of the Bulge in December 1944 and beyond. It was Paul Wolfowitz who said that surprise attacks happen so often in history that the surprising thing is that we're still surprised by them. (laughs) Because war is indeed, as uh, Karl von Clausewitz put it, the continuation of politics by other means. It's important for the war leaders to have a sixth sense for politics, which in some areas overlaps with the military skill, um, such as in the importance of having a feel for the coup d'oeil, a sense of timing, an aptitude for observation, the gift of working out what is genuinely important as opposed to diversionary, a faculty for predicting an opponent's likely behaviour in differing scenarios and so on. Here, one must commend the politico-military thinking of Ramses II, King David, Themistocles, uh, Muhammad, Charlemagne, William the Conqueror, Alexander Nevsky, uh, Sultan Mehmed II, Oliver Cromwell, Duke of Edinburgh, and, um, uh, and Eugène of Savoy who need to be mentioned in the same breath as, as if they were joined at the hip, those two. Uh, those two. The Frederick the Great, of course, Clive of India, Simon Bolivar, these people understood politics. Um, Philip Petta in World War I, um, Kemal Ataturk, uh, Carl Gustav Mannerheim, and Gerald Templer. Of course, opportunism played a large part in the success of many of these political generals and commander politicians. It was important for the statesmen too. Um, in uh, Otto von Bismarck's phrase, wait until he hears the steps of God sounding through events and then leap up and grasp the hem of his garment. There are a good few um, great military commanders who got the military side right, but the political disastrously wrong, um, of whom one might include Xenophon, Pompey, Charles XII, uh, Frederick the Great, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, Eric Ludendorff in the First World War, as well, of course, as Rundstedt, von Manstein, Guderian, Rommel in the Second World War. Philip Petain was a great military uh, leader in World War I and a disastrous political one in World War II. Churchill's estimation of Robert E. Lee as, quote, one of the noblest Americans who ever lived and one of the greatest captains known to the annals of war makes it all the more tragic that the politics of race in this country has meant that his statue has been removed in Charlottesville and elsewhere across the South. Yet I cannot help thinking that such was his noble character that if he were alive today and were to see the type of people who seem to worship it as a graven image to their foul political philosophy, he would help to remove it himself. That said, there have now been calls to remove Nelson from his column in Trafalgar Square in London over his support for slavery. 
Um, and it's only a matter of time before they're caused to pull down Churchill's statue in Parliament Square because he was a racist. We, agree, we need to agree as a society where the norms of sanity reassert themselves. And sanity wouldn't, in my um, opinion, be reasserted by taking down the statue of the great explorer Christopher Columbus a few blocks from here uh, on the basis that over 500 years ago he was no expert in germ theory. Concluding this lecture series, it would be easy to say that, like the rhinoceros, leadership is hard to define from first principles, but you certainly know it when you see it. Yet I don't believe that. There are definable first principles and leadership techniques that are eternal, as applicable to Cyrus the Great and Leonidas as to Georgi Zhukov and Gerald Templer. What is more, they can be learned which is why the careers and battles of some of the great military leaders of the past are rightly still taught at naval and military academies such as West Point, Annapolis, Sandhurst and Shrivenham today. If you want to know what will move hearts and uh, command multitudes today and in the future, there's only one thing to do. Study the past. In history lie all the secrets of statecraft, said Winston Churchill in May 1953, and the same is true of statecraft's vital subsection war leadership. So my final message from this uh, Lehrman Institute lecture series is this. To look for that mysterious visionary and often sinister genius that marks out the great captains of history, of the past and present, but also of the future, one must come to places like the New York Historical Society, go to exhibitions, attend lecture series, read books, and generally immerse oneself in this fascinating subject. For that is the only way to learn whether you're being led by a great leader, a good leader, a bad or even evil leader, and also to discover whether you might have within you what it takes to be a leader yourself. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> Right, we've got lots of questions um, here, and I'm going to ask myself them. The, the um, easy, easiest ones, needless to say. Okay, we literally do have loads, so we're going to go through this uh, really very swiftly. Um, sorry, not that one. <laughs> sorry. sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Um, do poor leaders ever win wars? Which ones? And do great leaders lose? Gosh, that's such a brilliant question. Whoever came up with that, that is an absolutely brilliant question. Here, this is the point at which I ought to come out with the list of 30 of, of, of each um, side. Um, and instead, I'm going to um, generalize uh, terribly, um, which is that, yes, of course, there are, there are many um, great leaders. We were just talking earlier about... Uh, about the Confederate leaders. Overall, the Confederate generals were superior to the um, federal generals. It's a big uh, argument to make, but I think it's one that can be uh, backed up. If you are wildly outgunned, if you have um, populations much smaller than the one that you're fighting against, if you have um, just simply... Like uh, another good example would be the Boer War. The Boer War in South Africa between 1899 and 1902, the uh, British had a series of appallingly bad generals and the Boers uh, superbly good ones. Um, 
bloater, de wet, um, stain, um, smuts. These were, these were fine uh, guerrilla fighters. But ultimately, uh, a um, country, uh, two republics of uh, 250,000 people, is not going to beat an empire of 250 million. And so, um, and so, although war leadership is as important as I think I've hopefully made it out to be, it is not the sole deciding factor of, um, uh, of wars. What type of training did leaders undertake to prepare for D-Day, and how did they manage to keep it secret? Um, this is another good uh, question, entirely answered, actually, by my book, Masters and Commanders, um, <laughs> which I'm told is on sale in your wonderful shop here. Um, it is, um, the answer is that, that, they, uh, that it really was on-the-job um, training for the uh, commanders at D-Day. They were, um, many of them, in, um, in civilian life, up until, uh, up until the attack on Pearl Harbor. And yet, within two and a half years or so, they were able to, uh, to take on the Wehrmacht in, uh, in Northwest Europe. And the reason that they were able to do that was because of battles, some that they lost, like Kazarine Pass, others in North Africa and Sicily and, uh, and Italy that they won. There is nothing like um, on-the-job training in the case of, um, of war leaders, and that's what happened in the Second World War with the United States Army to a very great degree. The way they managed to keep it secret was um, by doing four or five pretty, um, pretty impressive and tough things. They, um, first of all, stopped all dip diplomatic um, traffic. Uh, no no um, uh, neutral was allowed to send any messages outside the United Kingdom from April onwards. We just closed down all diplomatic uh, traffic and telegrams. Um, the all um, private uh, letters were were stopped at the time. Um, there were huge, um, uh, huge. Everybody was forced to stay on base for the in the weeks running up to D Day. Extremely frustrating for people, but they they were, you know the soldiers were not allowed to go out to the pubs in the in the weeks before the um, before the invasion. Um, it was a uh, it was a massive secret operation, and of course there was also the great deception. Um, plans, the op uh, Operation Fortitude North and Fortitude South that were being employed. So, um, uh, so that's how it was done. Do you think ruthlessness as a quality inspires respect or fear in the people that are being led? Um, again, it's, in, it's so difficult to generalise on something as big as that, but um, the, there, is, there are different levels of ruthlessness. Um, you know, Adolf Hitler was clearly far more ruthless than any Democrat um, can be in a, in a war. Um, it's not always good to be ruthless under all circumstances. I hope nobody takes away that um, uh, lesson from this lecture series. However, there have been, there are times when it's, it's necessary, when it has to, um, it has to be done. Um, I think there are times also that you, one can go too far, especially in democracies. The classic example, of course, being the mass internment of Japanese in, uh, the, uh, in this country after the 7th of December. I think um, 
it's, uh, of course, an emergency measure, very um, nerve-wracking to take a decision like that. I think ultimately it's seen by most historians to have been the wrong one in that these um, people who were interned were not uh, inherently disloyal. We did almost exactly the same thing in, uh, in Britain. Um, it was uh, Churchill who, in May 1940, said, "Collar the lot." Um, and uh, and an awful lot of people who were interned, especially Jews, of course, who had escaped from uh, Germany in the 1930s, um, were desperate to be helpful and supportive in the Second World War, and instead was slammed up in the Isle of Man for uh, for many months. What can um, uh, which um, which Churchill himself in Parliament said was an was an odious thing to uh, to do. Um, in the course of it, however, they were um, released as soon as they possibly could be. There were um, tribunals that, uh, that that started releasing people almost as soon as they'd they'd um, gone there. It was um, not uh, not our finest hour. Do you think not being a great orator or writer helps to endear a leader to the average person? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't think that. I don't think that. I don't. I think that. Um, I think that a that part of um, of great uh, oratory is to impart to the um, listener that um, the person is that the leader is um, is genuine and is being um, uh, is is actually being sort of honest and genuine and saying the things that he believes um, properly. So um, so if you are. Um, tempted to follow somebody simply because they're a bad orator, um, but nonetheless um, is, is therefore much more sort of much more average. Um, then that's a uh, then that's a sad thing. That would be a sad moment for uh, for democracy. I remember there was a and I can't remember his name now, unfortunately, an American senator who um, was accused of being uh, basically thick and. Um, Thank you. Yes. Yes. Exactly. And what? And what was the fabulous line he came up with? He said that, uh, absolutely. That's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, it's. It's not the way um, that you're going to keep your republic great, uh, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Are the qualities discussed in tonight's lecture taught in war colleges? Um, Yes, they are. Very much they are. I've, I've spoken in all of those war colleges that I uh, mentioned in that speech. The historians are constantly being invited to war colleges, the, um, both naval and military. Um, it's, one of the, um, it's one of the pleasing things that, uh, that the, the past and, um, and uh, generals and, and campaigns and battles of the past are, uh, are being taught on a very regular basis in uh, War colleges. Um, how do you reconcile meticulous planning with Napoleon's maxim about battle? I engage and then I work it out. Um, because that's true of everybody. The, it's not just Napoleon. The, um, you have the meticulous planning until the moment of engagement, and then after that, it's uh, it's as I as I mentioned, no uh, no battle lasts much beyond the uh, the opening scene of it. But that doesn't in any way undermine his, uh, his truth about how important it is to plan before the initial clash of arms. The, um, the extraordinary amount of work that went into his war planning did mean that when the clash of arms did 
start, did begin, he was in the best possible uh, position that he could be. Uh, we see it, of course, also in the opening of the Great War um, with Winston Churchill, who was uh, First Lord of the Admiralty, making sure the fleet was ready, was in, in position, was absolutely primed for the moment that they got the telegram to say that hostilities had opened with Germany on the 4th of August 1914. After that... Um, all hell breaks loose, of course it does. But to ensure that um, all your ducks are in a row is, um, is an essential part of war leadership. Um, if Hitler had read War and Peace, would he have invaded Russia? <laughs> um, very good question. I mean, I don't know that he didn't uh, read, uh, read War and Peace. Um, he, he, he did um, learn history. He, uh, Winston Churchill actually joked about, um, about how he uh, hadn't obviously um, read about, about Napoleon. And so um, the choice of almost exactly the same day to Churchill, uh, Napoleon crossed the River Neiman on the 21st of June, 1812, and Hitler attacked on the 22nd of June, 1941. Uh, to have launched the, uh, the attack within 24 hours of the most disastrous attack in, uh, in history um, was an interesting choice. He had a, um, he had a sense that mechanized warfare was going to be completely different from, um, from Napoleonic warfare where everything had to be pulled by, uh, by horses and, and oxen. But actually, ultimately, of course, it was Napoleon who did capture Moscow and Hitler who didn't. Uh, even in a in an era of um, of mechanized warfare, one of the drawbacks, of course, was that certain types of um, of German um, fuel actually froze, and so um, and so that was something that uh, was um, was pretty disastrous. You had a situation by the um, mid December of 1941, where pretty much anyone who went outside at all. Um, in the in the central front of the uh, of the Wehrmacht uh, central thrust attack on on Moscow, um, would die of exposure. So you you simply couldn't fight uh, any more than the um, than the Russians could for uh, for weeks on end. There, a leader's made or born. They're made. That's what this whole thing is about. Um, um, is the. Um, What's the most overrated um, trait uh, for a leader? Gosh, that's a very good, good, good question. I mean, Napoleon asked um, his generals before they were made into marshals, he asked them whether they were lucky. Uh, and the, the whole story of, um, of contingency and, uh, and, and luck in warfare, of course, is worth another entire lecture series. Um, but... Um, it's it's very it's it's often very much underrated because of course you can't quantify luck and some people are going to be lucky one day and and others are, uh, unlucky another. It's it's just a uh, it's just an aspect that um, is so difficult to um, to put in. Another a very difficult aspect when writing is to when writing about leaders is to convey charm. Um, charm is something that is so. Um, is so 
you, you sort of have to be there to appreciate it. And uh, it's so difficult 100 years later to, you can say somebody is charming, but to explain quite how they are or why they are or in what way they are able in a one-on-one situation to persuade people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do um, is something that it's, it's hard to, to get over um, to a reader. You have in that list of uh, people there, you have people who were obviously suffused with charm. JFK was one of the people I, uh, I mentioned, you know. Um, and others who, despite being right about very many things, the, both the elder and the younger Moltkes, um, for example, were so blinding and a Ludendorff as well, so blindingly uncharming um, that um, although people would would you know, fight to death for them, um, they they hated them. <laughs> it's a it's a, a strange um, it's a strange phenomenon. Um, how would you assess Harry Truman as a war leader? Um, very good. Yes, I, I I'm sorry that I didn't. Um, uh, have um, have space for one on Harry Truman. I'm a great admirer of Harry Truman. I think that uh, uh, his, not just for his, um, I mean, his war leadership, of course, in, in Korea is one thing, but in the Second World War, really, he, he's only pretty much um, known for the one great uh, decision with regard to the atom bomb. But um, he, as a peace leader as well, the creation of the whole of the uh, post-war settlement, a settlement that we're, we're now seeing starting to fall apart um, infuriatingly, but nonetheless, which has uh, served civilization incredibly well for 70 years, is very much down to his... Um, to his leadership and his um, vision of how the world was going to be able to work um, after that uh, cataclysmic conflict. So, um, so I would assess Harry Truman extremely highly. If you were asked to present a second Leaders in War series that uh, focused on leadership after the Cold War, which leaders would you choose to study and why? It is, there is a, I, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial um, this evening by saying that there is a huge dearth in leadership in the world today. Um, it is hard um, outside, the, actually, funny enough, the, um, uh, it, there's a dearth in, amongst the democracies. Um, with um, the president of China, the president of Russia, um, you do get um, impressive leadership. It just seems to be that um, that it's uh, it's our side of the uh, of the fence that seems to be throwing up so few people of uh, of massive um, uh, sort of gigantic status, um, which is one of the one of the great worries. Um, I would say that I would concentrate on the 1950s and 1960s. I think Dwight Eisenhower was a a much better president uh, in retrospect than he might have seen at the time. Um, In many ways, the 1950s were a golden age for for the United States, and he uh, deserves a lot of credit for that, I think. Um, you, you 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 do have them. Many of them, of course, Charles de Gaulle in France, for, an ex- for example, were people who were leaders in the uh, in the Second World War, who were sort of hangovers on into the uh, into the peace. Um, it's also important, however, to point out that um, you, 
that ideally you don't want to need to have leaders. It would be a much, uh, a much happier world if um, there weren't the crises that were being thrown up necessarily and constantly that require um, leaders. Happy is the world without the need for them. And also you get people who grow into the job um, who might not seem like a, uh, a leader, but when the crisis comes, um, turns into one. And that's, uh, that's a, um, great, um, a great aspect. One, we, we wouldn't have expected Margaret Thatcher to have been a war leader particularly, but then when the Falklands happened, kapow, um, we had somebody who was, uh, who was quite frankly, uh, Churchillian. Um, of the nine leaders you studied in the presentation of this series, which of the leaders surprised you the most with their skills, strategy and intelligence or lack thereof? Well, I, I, I tried to choose people because of their skills, strategy and intelligence in the first place. Uh, obviously not Hitler and, and Stalin um, in, this, uh, in this case. I... Um, my, the, the, I'm writing a book about Winston Churchill at the moment, so I won't go on about uh, him, even though I've got my um, publisher here who'd love me to use this as an opportunity for free advertising. Um, but he does again and again, of course, um, uh, surprise me. It's, it's a little like uh, writing this book, um, which I've been doing for the last four years or so, is, um, is like just rowing over the Atlantic and chucking a bucket over the side, pulling up uh, whatever's inside. And there's always something gleaming and wonderful and, and funny and brilliant. Uh, it's uh, it's an, a quite extraordinary um, fun, really, uh, being with this man for the last four years. Um, but, but he hasn't surprised... I'm not surprised by his skill, strategy and intelligence because I knew he had it anyway in the first place. Um, I was... Uh, I suppose um, grudgingly impressed, um, I suppose is the best way of putting it, with Charles de Gaulle. He um, uh, instinctively, I would love to hate him, uh, of course, not least because he, he hated the British so much. Um, but, um, but ultimately, again and again, he did get things incredibly right. He was incredibly brave. He did have a um, that that um, impossible um, sense of, um, of of keeping his his dignity and his status, even though um, he was representing a country that had no dignity or status whatsoever uh, between 1940 and 44, and uh, and so I suppose um, um, with clenched teeth, I have to say, uh, Charles de Gaulle. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.